We have a special 30% discount on the How to Triple Your Agency Size event next Thursday morning at the Curtain Club in Shoreditch. The speakers include podcast guests, our most downloaded so far, by the way. He's also a serial agency founder, Felix Velardi, on the 2Y3X growth formula. He is joined by serial VC, Frank Kelch, on how to sell to major accounts and diversity and inclusion guru, Darwood Gustav, on how to develop harmonious leadership. That's how to triple your agency's size on Thursday, the 14th of November. The first 10 tickets using the code AgencyDealMasters, no space, will get a 30% discount. So visit 2y3x.com slash event to get your tickets now. What can I say about this week's guest? We speak with Brent Adamson from Gartner. He is probably best known for his phenomenal books, Challenger Sale and Challenger Customer, which have sold millions of copies and are just mandatory reading for anyone that's in sales and marketing. I I can't even preface the conversation by describing it. It's Brent Adamson. We discuss everything from modern sales and marketing challenges, the legacy and criticisms of Challenger, and why most people doing content marketing and thought leadership are actually doing it incorrectly. Uh, He says, the problem in B2B is in our efforts to differentiate and add more value to the customer, we've inadvertently made our products more complex. You know, we've moved it to the cloud, we need to make it mobile, which now means that more people need to be involved in the buying decision, procurement, security, data, etc. So, the thing that we need to solve for now is actually how do we get widespread support for our products across the customer organization? So the issue has moved from how do we become challengers ourselves, the concept of his first book, to actually how do we find challengers inside the customer organization? Just, you know, absolutely fascinating. Uh, We also discuss what happens in a world where all content, including our competitors' content, is actually pretty good. It's backed by data, it's quality information, it's credible. So just doing thought leadership and content marketing is actually making us all commodities. Um, I I just had so much fun talking with him, and I think that will come across when you hear our discussion. He's super fun, he's super engaging, and surprisingly vulnerable. He talks about his struggles with imposter syndrome, which I never thought I would actually hear from a giant in sales and marketing. For someone who has achieved as much as he has, he's very humble, super gracious. Make sure you stick around and listen to our favorite questions at the end of the show. We go completely off script and discuss his failures, uh, streaming wars, his favorite books. If you are remotely interested in just anything to do with B2B sales and marketing, then you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So, Without me keeping you in suspense any further, my extra special conversation with Brent Adamson. Brent Adamson serves as the chief storyteller for Gartner's sales and marketing practices. He is the co-author of the best-selling book, The Challenger Sale and the Challenger Customer, and a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and Forbes. He is a sought-after speaker, researcher, author, and facilitator with more than 25 years of experience. 
Across the last 16 years, Brent has been privileged to work with some of the greatest thought leaders in B2B and B2C sales and marketing, and has worked with hundreds of senior executives across virtually every industry, geography, and go-to-market model. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Brent Adamson, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you so much, Nathan. This will be great fun. I'm looking forward to it. Great stuff. You've got an absolutely fascinating background. You you get your PhD in German and applied linguistics in 2000. Then you go on to the Ross School of Business, where you get your MBA in corporate strategy and general management. How do you go from being an academic to the business world? Uh, it is largely a story, Nathan. It's not an interesting one, so I'll do the short version. I'll right. be fair, but the, it is a story pr- primarily of misspent youth. Um, so and. <laughs> You know, you know, you're in your 20s and you don't really know what you want to be when you grow up. It turns right. out I was still in my 30s and didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. <laughs> but, if I, but if I had to look back on it and put a, a cohesive narrative around something mm. that frankly wasn't that cohesive, um, I, I, the way I like to think of it is simply I have got now, scary thought, about a 30-year career, not quite, um, researching and teaching things. So mm. that's what I've done from day one coming out of undergrad. I went off to get a PhD originally in political science, which mm. then became applied linguistics of German which then turns out you can't make any money being an academic. So then you go and get a business degree. Uh, and then lo and behold, you find this company called Corporate Executive Board, which then became CEB, which is now part of Gartner, uh, where they were looking for people who can research and teach. And it just so happened that the opening in which they were looking was sales, uh, which then expanded the marketing. So um, as, over the, my career, I've, I've built this, this sort of pipeline mm. and infrastructure of researching things and writing and teaching things. It's just that the content that I've put through that pipeline has changed pretty radically about 16 years ago. And it's been a long time. I've been here a long time mm-hmm. talking to heads of sales and marketing all over the world, but that's, um, that's the short version. It is, um, basically, uh, uh, it is. It, it's a really privileged position that I'm in now. I think to and and I'm lucky. I just I'm really lucky uh, to to be able to have the access that we do and that I do to really senior leaders around the world to ask some really tough questions about what how that world is changing and mm. then report back and and share it with everyone. Really interesting. It's it's not your typical journey from being an academic to being a salesperson or at least a sales trainer. Um, yeah. it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty un, un, unusual journey. Um, but you, now, so to be you, fair though, I, I'm neither of those, not that I'm trying <laughs> to correct you, but it's, I'm right. neither a trainer nor am I a salesperson. So right. but what I am, I'm a researcher. So I, I, again, I, I research things and, and write on them with the support of an incredible team of really, really talented people that really make up the Gartner sales mm. practice today. So, so you know, it's funny that the dirty little secret, which I don't actually necessarily advertise is one of the reasons why I don't put the PhD in my title and don't spend a lot of time talking about it other mm. than, well, now is that I've actually, uh, wait for, here's the credibility crisis coming, Nathan, are you ready for this? I've never actually carried a bag and I've never had a quota. Uh, and wow. uh, though I've been on hundreds and hundreds of sales calls over right. the years and working with our own sales teams and other sales teams. Right. Um, but, but the thing I think that, that I, and, and really for that matter, we as a team bring to the table is objectivity is sure. perspective, because once you're in the trenches out selling every day, you begin to write to your experience is what you think works for you. Definitely. And we're so much more interested in the question of like, what's the thing that we're not seeing? What's the thing that, mm. that doesn't seem obvious? What's the, you know, if you go out and study things with a lot of data and a lot of analysis, you begin to see the world in ways that you don't see it in the trenches every sure. single day. And that's the value ultimately we look to bring to the table. And ultimately you've got that separate, that distance from it, because when you're in the trenches, when you're a salesperson, you're emotionally involved <laughs> and that emotion sort of kind of can cloud judgment and decision-making. Whereas you're slightly Absolutely. more removed 
removed from that. Quite fascinating. You you spent 14 years with CEB, which is now Gartner. Now, I, yeah. I, I knew CEB as the organization that did those huge research studies on sales skills and, and behavior. But describe what Gartner is today and what problems do you solve for your clients? In, you know, in many ways, the story is no different. So Gartner acquired uh, not just the sales practice of CEB, but all of CEB a couple of years ago. Hmm. Uh, and the you know, corporate executive order, again, what became CEB is a, is a research organization, a membership driven model around, you know, with, with practices or teams in sales, marketing, IT, procurement, HR, uh, you name it. Um, and so as Gartner incorporated all of those different practices into the Gartner ecosystem, um, what was interesting is that uh, there was no legacy sales practice at Gartner. So it was kind of new to Gartner to have a sales practice. But it, and so in many ways, what that means simply and practically speaking is that the, the Gartner for sales leaders practice today is by and large the result of the legacy CEB sales practice. So everything that you've known from us for the last 20 years hmm. is really exactly what we do today with an added component of what Gartner's really brought to the table of what we call the analyst role. Uh, and we can go into that if you want, but it's it's a really powerful sort of separate model. It's kind of like, it's kind of like chocolate and peanut butter. You put these two things together and like magic happens, right? <laughs> so that if you take the, the sort of the classic Gartner model of an analyst approach and the classic mm. CB model of a research-based approach mm. uh, and you put them together, you get uh, this juggernaut of insight and capability in sales uh, that that is now the Gartner for Sales Leaders uh, product. So we're, we're super excited about uh, what it is today and really kind of what we want to make it across the coming years. But it's all the legacy, the DNA, if you trace it back, is exactly what you're talking about, is these big research projects, among many other things. Sure. Um, and, and it's all led by myself and a couple of colleagues, that I, uh, you know, at least unofficially. I, I'm, I'm not the leader of the group of the P&L owner. I'm just the schlub who writes the research, but the, along with <laughs> everyone else. But the uh, um, is, is this mindset. The thing that really drives us more than anything else is not a structure, a brand, a title. Mm. It is a mindset of asking what are we all missing? What are we not seeing? What, what are we, what's the question we should be asking, but we're not, you know, in some ways it's funny. If you look at the whole body of work of challenger, mm -hmm. it's all autobiographical. It's literally what we do. If you were to particularly the challenger customer, if you look at that book, that is a soup to nuts, uh, uh, uh instruction manual on how we do our job. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to think about it that way, cause that's, it's exactly the kind of work that we do here and what we're looking for. And then in a very meta sort of level and doing research on how to do research, we came up with the challenger work. Hmm. Well, let's let's talk about Challenger Sale and Challenger Customer. Um, yeah. Both are fantastic books, but approach the challenges of selling high value deals in very different ways. Um, Challenging Customer, you call Challenger Customer book 2.0 uh, of Challenger. Describe where Challenger Sale ends and Challenger Customer begins. Um, you know, in, in some ways it's not that the, I, I guess the, and by the way, what's really interesting now is like the, the book that is yet to be written, which is coming next soon, hopefully is, um, everything we've learned since the challenger customer. We can dig into that, Nathan, if you'd like to at some point, but the, sure. um, you know, the, the, the challenger sale book and really ultimately the project, which by the way, a lot of people don't fully appreciate this, including myself. Sometimes that work is 10 years old now, you believe wow. it or not. So the, the original research that we, we, um, ran to to lead that led to the book was mm. conducted uh, uh, and debate debuted to the world for the first time in may of 2010 so wow. excuse me 2009 you so sure? it's literally been in fact it's over 10 years now um and, and it was really meant and, and we dive into this in the book in some detail so just a real brief version of mm -hmm. it here but it was meant you think about 2009 like 
those tough times. Right? So 2009 sure. was a tough, just after the tough recession. Year. Right? Say, there's something about that global recession mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. The, um, <laughs> and and it was interesting because the, it gave us this really interesting moment to look at sales professionals and sales performance with an urgency that we hadn't looked at in the past. Simply because uh, you know everyone was wiping out. Right? Nobody was selling anything back then because no one was buying anything. It was incredibly dramatic and frankly pretty scary. Um, but the thing that was so fascinating about that time was not so much that no one was selling. That, that it was the fact that a couple people actually were, right? So you go to just about any sales organization around the world in 2009 and head of sales would tell you, you know, not surprisingly, everyone's at 40% of goal. But they, they always, there's always this moment and then they look and say, but you know what's weird? I've got this one person who's at 110% of goal and arguably the single most difficult economy in recent history, if hmm. not ever. And he's like, and I always led this question, like, what in the world are they sure. doing differently? Right. So it was like this crystallizing moment in history where there's always been star performers. Sure. Of course, we know that. But boy, you could see how different they were or just that they were different more clearly then than ever before, because the gap between everyone else right. and the star performers was massive. Right. And so it led to this question what in the world? I mean, how can they keep selling when nobody's buying? And so that then launched the the research shift that became uh, the Challenger work and the Challenger sale. Uh, and, then, and then what happened then after that book came out is across the next several years, so this would be what, 2010, 11, 12, 13, the book came out, the second book came out in 2015. We, we began to realize, we continue as we still do, talk to heads of sales and sales leaders around the world, that the things that they were hearing from them started to be less and less about sellers and more about buyers and customers. And the thing that that was frustrating was not so much my people can't sell or my people are struggling, but rather it's like, you know, it was more things like I'm running the playbook that I've always run and Mm -hmm. it's not working anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and that was, that began to sort of indicate like the context is different. The, 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 the environment into which we're selling is dramatically different. And that, that's launched a essentially an ongoing project, which we still continue today, which is not so much studying selling, which we still do, but studying buying and understanding what's going on on the buying side and the customer side. What are the buying dynamics? Who's involved? What are they looking at? What does that mean? And and I'll tell you, you know, as I often tell people when I get up in front of um, big stages around the world and talk to sales leaders, Nathan, you know, it, I'll, I'll get up in front of them because you can't just get up in front of a bunch of sales reps and say, Challenger wins because they get really mad and say, what are you telling me? I'm doing it wrong and I should mm-hmm. fix it. Who are you to tell me I'm broken? Right. Mm-hmm. And it never goes well. Lesson learned. Um, so <laughs> what I what I what I tell sales leaders and particularly sales professionals now is that. Look, you may be a great sales professional. You may have a long-standing track record of of going to the this on the incentive trips, and you might have all the loose sight trophies on your credenza, and you know you might be the single best seller in the organization. Mm-hmm. So I'm not here to tell you that you're broken or you need to do things differently. Rather, what what I want to share with you today is simply a story of what we're seeing in all of our research, which is across the last five now twelve years or so, but particularly especially in the last five, what we're seeing is not a dramatic change in the story of selling what we're seeing is incredibly dramatic change in the story of buying and how buying b2b buying behavior is changing very dramatically and so you put those two things together you get this really interesting narrative of what happens when we take the old world of selling and run it right into the teeth of the new world of buying you find things actually start to to fall apart so so that it's not so much that the the challenger customer book was a different story or but your question was like where does one stop and one where does one start Hmm. I, it's a, it's a, it's more of a continuum, but I think where they stop is, is the challenger sale was solving for selling. 
the challenger customer is really solving for buying, but what you find is the solution is pretty consistent across the two and, and pretty powerful. Okay. One of the interesting things about the environment that has changed is yeah. you write that the the it, it's harder to sell to larger organizations. So there are three main things that have really changed when it comes to selling to C-level executives who need to drive change within their organizations. One, businesses are bigger than ever. So for, if you're selling into Fortune 500 businesses, they're bigger and more complex than ever before. Um, the increase in the strength of buying functions is more powerful, i.e. procurement, security, IT security and data, etc. And we have more educated buyers than ever before. So, but I was always taught that selling to educated buyers is a good thing within large organizations, but that's not the case. Well, uh, it, it is and it is. It is a, it's a double-edged sword. And this is really, by the way, let me lay this out. And then we can talk about how the story is evolving if you want, because mm. it's the way it's evolving today is mm. totally different and it's really dramatic. But mm. but to go back, just real back, just, just as one click, is the thing that we're interested in is not so much how to sell to large customers, um, but rather how to sell complex Deals and the reason why I, it's, it, it, it may sound like a distinction without a difference, but it's actually really important because important. the uh, yeah. right because because again you, what you're going to find is that the same story plays out even in relatively small companies, really hmm. these medium-sized companies. In fact, I, I was presenting the challenge of work a number of years ago to a, a company in food and beverage, and they said you know a lot of our customers are mom and pop, but we see the exact same dynamic playing out. Mom and pop don't always agree with each other, so mm -hmm. it's and the reason why is because what we're ultimately trying to sell as B two B suppliers ultimately I think is is larger, more complex solutions, or whatever you might call them, value-added, additional services, whatever. So, sure. so to the degree that you're selling just you know individual products that are easily copied, they're also easily commoditized. And mm -hmm. so over the years in B2B, we've all run the same play, and it's the right play to run, which is let's sell more complex products with more, not so much more complex, but let's add, let's add additional capabilities sure. onto our product or our solution. Let's add services onto that. Let's expand the technology. Let's make it mobile. Let's put it in the cloud. And we do all these things to continually differentiate, to differentiate ourselves from the competition, to ourselves, the competition right. right? to stay ahead and to add more value. But what's interesting though, is even if you're selling into a mid-sized company to the degree that your solution now offers more value to more people across the customer organization, which is a good thing. It stands to reason that that customer is going to say, hey, if, if this solution is going to touch all of these different people, mm -hmm. they're all going to want to have a say in what actually gets bought, which mm -hmm. is not necessarily a bad thing, but it is a frustrating thing. Because mm -hmm. now, now you've got to herd the cats, right? So that you've got more people than ever involved. And, and as these solutions get bigger and, of course, as a result, more expensive, then people get really risk averse to want to make that decision on their own. And so then you go, watch this. This is really interesting. So then you say, well, the only way that I'm going to escape this trap is I've got to go up in the organization. Sure. I've got to get higher. I've got to claw my go way to the, to the CEO. Right? Because if I can go to the CEO, then he or she is more than willing to make that kind of decision on yeah. behalf of his or her organization. And they can, they can drive it through. Complete BS, right? So it just mm. doesn't, that's not the way it was our BS, but that's, that's not a research term. So that's complete <laughs> false um, because it doesn't work that way. So they, what happens is, in fact, we saw this as early as 2006, believe it or not, right. um, which is the number one thing that senior leaders uh, care about in making a solutions purchase uh, is widespread support of that purchase across their team. Because just like everyone else, they don't want to be the person that signs up for a, say, $15 million CRM system that no one uses. Nobody wants to be that person. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've landed in this world of the consensus-based sale 
where there's just a massive number of people involved in the purchase. And, and our first sort of foray into this world was the Challenger customer talking about what we call the 5.4. Right. And that on average, there's 5.4 people involved in the purchase. I'll tell you, every year since then, that book came out across the last five years, and we study that question, that number's gone up. And it's, it's just somewhere now in double. The number it's probably in the double digits now, somewhere around 10 or 11, which is crazy. And we can talk about why. But so that's one side of the story. Now, the other side of the story, so we can dig in there. Let me, I'll give you the option because the other part of the story you want to ask about is like this uh, running parallel is the fact that all of those individual stakeholders are all doing a lot of learning on their own. So they're yeah. more informed than ever before. Yeah. That, that dynamic plays out in some really frustrating ways. So you, where would you like to go? There's, it's like, this like choose your own adventure, Nathan. Well, I'm really interested to know why the number of stakeholders have increased in the buying decision. Can we talk a okay. little bit about that? Yeah. So let's talk about that first. And by the way, this is, I think, for all of your listeners. And again, whether you're a big company or a small company, whether mm -hmm. you're selling to big companies or selling to small companies, mm -hmm. again, think about the complex deals, the, the bigger solutions, the add-on services, the, the broader scope products, solutions, technologies, services that you want to sell. There's a really interesting question to ask, which is, who's involved in the purchase of your solution? Do you know? An even better question to ask is, does your customer know? Because because oftentimes they don't. They, you know, sometimes we are selling to the, the senior decision maker as if that one individual is willing and able to make that purchase on their own. And again, we just don't see that in our data. So, And the reason why is, is, number, is, is multiple reasons. One is the thing I already mentioned, which is as the scope of what we're selling continues to broaden in our efforts to escape commoditization, the complexity. it stands the reason that more people want to be involved in the sure. purchase. The second thing is you know, the, the, the downturn, again, it was 10 years ago, um, and yet here we are where everyone is, I don't have data to say just as risk averse, but similarly risk averse today as they were 10 years ago. It's interesting that, that risk aversion doesn't seem to have gone down because I think in many ways risk aversion today is not driven by economic climate. Risk aversion today is driven by uh, uh, solution and organizational complexity. And so what, what, what companies seem to be most risk averse about today is not just blowing money, spending good money after bad or bad money after good, or whichever the way that metaphor works. But rather what they're worried about is like, I'm going to buy something and it won't work. I can't implement it. Some mm. people won't be happy with it. It's, mm. it's not going to play nice with all of my other technology. Mm -hmm. And so, so we have this massive risk aversion problem. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing you find, so that's two. The other, I think, really big reason is, is the third question I put to everyone that's listening today is, Who's involved in the purchase of a solution like yours today that wasn't involved just two years ago? Who's involved in the, in the purchase of a solution like yours today who wasn't involved just two years ago? And that, what's interesting about that question is the answer keeps changing as more and more people come to the table. And just to give you a sense for what I'm talking about, if this were four or five years ago, Nathan, mm -hmm. we'd be talking about IT being involved in a mm -hmm. purchase today in ways they hadn't been in the past. Because to the degree that I'm offering a human capital management solution or I'm offering uh, any sort of service or whatever, whatever it might be, chances are pretty good that that now has some sort of technology component to it, mm -hmm. right? Oftentimes it's, it's, it's delivered through technology or it's available on mobile or whatever mm -hmm. it might be. Mm -hmm. And as just about everything that we sell today now has a technology aspect to it. It stands the reason that IT is going to want to be involved in some way or another, at least in that purchase. Fast forward to today, you know where we are now. Just about every solution we sell today, and increasingly so, rapidly so, it has some sort of data component to it, right? So now, hmm. and particularly data that may be in fact stored in the cloud or somewhere else, right? So now I've got data storage, but what else do I have? Well, okay, now I've got data 
privacy. I've got data security. Mm-hmm. I, you know, in your neck of the woods, I've got GDPR. I've mm-hmm. got I've got all of these other sort of concerns. And so now all of a sudden, who's at the table now? People like, well, there's the legal team. We like mm-hmm. to call them the sales prevention department. <laughs> uh, there is a, there's data compliance. There, sure. There's a whole host of people saying, wait, this is in the cloud. Who owns this data? Who, sure. who has access to it? There's the you know PRs there trying to keep you off the front page of the Wall Street Journal when that data gets stolen. So it's interesting is, and it's really frustrating is as more and more people get added to the purchase, it's not like one comes on, one comes off. It's not like a zero-sum game. Right? The number just keeps going up and up. And it's really frustrating because if you're a sales rep selling into this world, she's like, who do I even talk to? How do I figure this out? How do I connect all these people, not just to me? How do I connect them to each other? And and that was – those kinds of questions were the, the beginning point of the challenger customer. And in many ways, what we see today is the challenges we tried to address in the challenger customer are actually significantly – harder today than they were even five years ago. So why can't we just get those people in the room and sell to them individually, those eight, 10 or 12 yeah. people? Why can't we just track them down individually and sell to them or in, indeed get them all in a room together and then present the value and then offer our, our solution once we know who those 10 people are? Or well, so what you just did is actually you outlined there in your question, it's a great question, it, 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 but you outlined two very different strategies. One, one is why can't we just all track them all down and sell to them? And then the other one, you said, why can't we get them all in a room? And it turns out those two things actually are very, in fact, radically different. Because the, the thing that actually launched the Challenger customer as a book it was this really bizarre and frankly, mind-bending and, and actually terrifying finding, that which was, uh, and it's all laid out in the first part of that book, but the um, the thing that we found in our data a few years ago was, in very simple terms, the better and better you get as a sales rep in positioning your offer on the individual merits of each stakeholder. So the better and better you get at tailoring your offer to what mm. each individual stakeholder cares about, the less likely you are to win what we call a high-quality deal. The, the, the less likely the, the customer is to buy that bigger, broader, uh, uh, more disruptive solution at the higher price point. And you'd expect, of course, to be the exact opposite. The, the more I can track down and win over each of these individual stakeholders, the more likely I am to win and win big. But it turns out by doing that, by tracking them all down and winning them all over individually, you actually make things worse, not better. And that that made no sense. to. This is why I sure. still do research after all these years. Because when you first look at that finding, it's like, how did that? Right. The first thing you tell is, you're to, the first thing you decide is, well, the data's wrong. Let's sure. go back and rerun the data. Um, and we did that about eight times. <laughs> like we remodeled all the data. We, we ran as a... And we couldn't make that finding go away. And so at some mm. point as a researcher, you're like, okay, let's just embrace it, see where this story takes us. Mm. And, and I think it's particularly problematic in the sense that, you know, for me personally, I've got my name on this book called The Challenger Sale, which is Teach, Tailor, Take Control. And I'm looking mm. at a bar chart that says tailoring hurts you. It's like, well, what? It's like, I often joke, it's like, we're going to write book number two and call it Psych. Um, but, <laughs> the, but, the, but the more and more we process it, the more we realize, in fact, what we have here, and this is really the heart and soul of the challenger customer in many ways, what we have here is not so much a numbers problem, which is kind of what we've been focused on in our conversation so far, hmm. is that there's all these people involved. Mm-hmm. The, tr- the real challenge we've got in this world is not a numbers problem. It's a diversity problem. It's the, mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is the fact that each one of those individual stakeholders represents a different function, a different role, a different geography, a different level. And so each one of them has got a different set of metrics, a different set of, uh, a different set of dashboards, a different set of ideas, priorities that they're operating to for for their part of the customer organization. And the degree to which those highly, that highly diverse buying group doesn't have much overlap across all those different priorities, overlap across what we call their mental models, 
then, then what happens when they come together to reach a collective decision on what to do, they settle for what we call lowest common denominator buying. They, they say, well, like, what can we all agree on? So literally in psychologists will tell you that in group decisions. When a group gets together to make a collective decision, whether it's a purchase decision or any other kind of decision, the first thing to ask themselves is like, what can we all agree on? Because that's because mm. I think, would you not agree, Nathan, when you get into a team meeting, the first thing you want to know more than anything else is when is this meeting over? Right. Like, <laughs> how do we make this? It's like, how do I make the pain end? It's like, I just want to stop. So, but also, so they what ask are we talking what do we about? all agree on? Right. What's that? So they, they, they ask themselves, um, what do we all agree on? And you know what they can agree on without any prompting? The things mm. they can agree on is... Um, well, let's see if we can reduce disruption. Let's see if we can avoid risk. Let's huh. let's see if we can play it safe. Let's see if we can save money because everyone, no matter where they are in the organization, thinks that saving their company money is a good thing. But if you're the supplier selling into that environment of lowest common denominator buying, hmm. it's really hard for you to sell the bigger, broader, more disruptive, frankly, more expensive solution when the natural gravitational pull of the diverse, large, diverse buying group is going to be towards something smaller and cheaper. And so... This is what happens, we think. So to the degree now you play out that strategy of track them all down and win them all over. Right. To the degree that I go to this person, win them over. I go to that person, win them over. I go to that right. person, win them over. And yet they're not connecting on their own. Then arguably what I've done in that world is not – what I've done is actually exacerbated difference, not overcome it. Hmm. And and this is why the deal the – deal, it doesn't necessarily fall apart, but the deal sort of shrinks down to something smaller because we've done nothing to help that buying group reach consensus around something bigger and broader than what they would naturally do on their own. So the the punchline to all this is what we really came to appreciate is in this world, yes, I've got to tailor to those customers' needs, but it's a very different kind of tailoring, which is tailoring with a view of not connecting individual stakeholders to us, but connecting those individual stakeholders to each to other, each other. Under, mm-hmm. understanding their disconnects, understanding where they're going to fail to to reach a, a bigger vision and and connect them help them connect to each other on that bigger broader vision but surely the problem is even made even worse because it, the complexity is really around three other main things as well that that salespeople struggle with getting a consensus around what the problem is that they're trying to solve in the first place the yep. organization getting a consensus around okay once once we've identified what the problem is what is the solution to that problem? Because there may be many different types of solutions right. available to them. And then once they've designed, defined what solution is the right one, which is the right supplier. And that's when that's usually when the salesperson um, is sort of invited to the table through an RFP or a tender or, yeah. or what have you. Um, so how do we get consensus around what the common problem is that we're trying to solve and then what the solution to that problem should be. Yeah. And th- this is where this is where book one and book two, Challenger, Sale, Challenger, Customer, really are not different books, but really just one long continuous narrative mm-hmm. across two books. Because the answer to that question is, in fact, this idea of challenging your customer. So the, rather than saying, you know, if it's how, to your question, Nathan, it's like, how do I get them to coalesce around a bigger problem? Right. How do I how do I get them to believe that this solution is a better solution than that solution? And how do I get them to buy from us? There's three right. really critical questions. Right. This idea of commercial insight, which is really the heart and soul of the challenger story, it solves for all of those. It, it, by the way, I, I, not every single time and every single way, but it's, it's not a panacea, but it's like if, it's a probability game. It's like if I want to increase the likelihood of winning in the world in the way you've laid out, 
we find that the single best instrument to making that happen is rather than going out and asking your customers, hey, what's your problem? Mm-hmm. I think we can help with that. Here's our solution is to go teach them a problem. Mm-hmm. Teach them uh, teach them about it. Not a problem. Maybe it's a problem. Maybe it's an opportunity. Uh, maybe it's, a, it's an alternate path. Maybe it's a different way of thinking. But one way or another, it's teach the customer something new and different. Not about you, the supplier, but teach your customer something new about them, about their organization, a new way to to make money, a new way to save money, a new way to mitigate risk, a new way to operate that they themselves, despite all of their own independent learning, haven't fully appreciated. And that's that, by the way, not only is that the best way for you to win in this world, it's actually the best way for you to deliver what's conceived of as valuable to your customers. Like, wow, this guy's actually teaching us, this individual is teaching us something about our company. He or she's not just showing up with speeds and feeds or product specs or tell me about their business and what they can do. They're helping me understand my business in ways that I hadn't fully appreciated. And, and if you do that well, and so this is what the Challenger customer is really all about, is laying this out soup to nuts. Like, how do you do this? Like, take me through the motion. Build that. What's the blueprint for this kind of conversation? And then we lay all that out step by step in that book, hmm. which is in many ways, I think, Nathan, why the second book is arguably better than the first one, because it's just so much more helpful in my mind. But the, uh, at least that was our hope. Hmm. But it is, how do I sit down and have a conversation with my customer that teaches them there's an opportunity or problem that they hadn't fully appreciated, shows them that this solution, solution course path or solution A, is by far the best path to pursue in order to address that opportunity or problem that you just taught me that I have. And it ultimately leads to, oh, and clearly you are the best supplier to deliver that solution. So mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of a three-step process. One, teach them something new to drive action, get them to embrace, not the status quo, but to get them to embrace change. I got to do something different. And then step two is, and I got to not just do anything different. I got to do that different in that way. So that's the solution. And once you embrace the solution, I say, wow, but who can help me with that? Who can help me do that better than anyone else? Then you got to be able to look your customer in the eye and say, let me show you how we can help you with that hmm. better than anyone else. So you, we call this leading to your unique strengths. So hmm. it's, you got to make sure that whatever you teach your customer about their business leads back to something that you can do better than anyone else. And I'll tell you honestly what I've come to truly appreciate in 10 years of working on this content is none of this is easy. I, I, it isn't. I mean, it's hard. I mean, and in some ways, you know what? The, you know what the hardest part of this whole thing is? It's not right. understanding customers' business better than understand themselves. The hardest part of this, is somewhat ironically, is understanding your own business. Because if sure. you're going to lead back to your unique strengths, mm-hmm. it means you actually have to know what your unique strengths are. Sure. And I'll tell you, that is a crushingly difficult question. Because the question here is not what are you good at, but what are you differently good at uniquely good at what it's not so it's the exercise here is not like list out all your strengths but mm-hmm. list out all your unique strengths and i'll tell you that one question or exercise has put the fear of of all things good into the hearts of virtually every <laughs> uh, not just sales leader but, sure. but ceo that we talk to because right. it's terrifying because it, and I, I gotta tell you honestly this is why you know going back to the very part of the beginning of our conversation you can tell i'm a researcher because to me it just seemed obvious like well, of course you do this right but then you go out and talk to the real world of executives and you're like okay none of us are actually buttoned down on this like how many is like we all know what we're good at but what are we uniquely good at because that because we're all you know working against two or three other competitors that are all pretty good at the same kinds of stuff and that which begs this question which we put out in book number one which is well then why the heck should our customers buy from us over mm-hmm. anyone else? Do we are we butt down on that question? Because it's it's critically important. And if the answer is only because you're cheaper, that's a bad bad place for us to be. Hmm. Quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about content marketing. You've got yeah. some strong words to say about content marketing, which is incidentally the world that I'm from. So I've sold yeah. content marketing services for agencies for many years, and there are many content agencies listening to this um, podcast. You say that there's a dark side to content marketing. It, it may be good enough to make you look like an expert, but it's not fundamentally 
uh, going to change the customer's behavior. Talk a little yeah. bit about that. Okay, so let's take you through this. And I got to tell you, in many ways, Nathan, uh, it's so much darker today than it was five years oh, ago. God, uh, even it, better. Great. Uh, no, it's actually, it's far worse. Um, because, <laughs> you know, it, and it's it's really interesting. Um, right. And by the way, it, again, it's it's not like I'm trying to sell a methodology here. It's just like you do research and you find this stuff and it's like, wow, it's like, right. what do we even do with this? But they, uh, in fact, I don't, I don't really think of challenge or any of this stuff as a methodology. It's just, I just still think of it as research, but sure. the, um, all right. So, so let's walk through it. So, so what's interesting is that when you say we need to teach the customer about their business, the, the thing, even going back six, seven years, I found particularly on the marketing side, when you talk to CMOs, they'd say, we agree. And they get really excited saying, I've been trying to tell our salespeople this for years. We've got to talk to the customer about the customer, not about us. And it's like, mm -hmm. so they, they're on board, right? It's like, and what's what's next though, what happens next is super interesting because they say, I've been trying to tell our heads of sales that we need to be a thought leader mm -hmm. for years. And there it is, the phrase thought leadership. Mm -hmm. and, and, and oh man, this is this is just like like now you're just like launch the rocket because it's like that because now you can get you going. Because that thought leadership would say, Well, so what do you so we ask said I've asked heads of marketing, so tell me about this thought leadership idea. Why do mm -hmm. you want to be a thought leader? What does it mean to be a thought leader? And they'll tell you that virtually the same thing. Well, if we're a thought leader, if we're saying smart things and putting, quote unquote, insight out into the marketplace that demonstrates that we have a, a perspective, that we demonstrate that we have expertise, well, that's going to show the marketplace that we're different, that sure. we're smarter, that we're better, and it's going to build trust. And so that moment, here's why the magic. Trust, right, it builds credibility to and all the and trust. Oh, God, yes. We're going to have trust coming out of our ears. So that way, <laughs> when our customers or our potential customers have a problem, you know what they'll do, Nathan? They'll come they'll to call. us. They'll call us first. Absolutely. That's it's the hard. Logic. It's, it's right. And, and I'll call you first, Nathan, because gosh darn it, you just say such smart things that if I've got a problem, you're the person I've got to, go to come to you. Right. Now, notice the logic of the strategy, because in order for this to work, what's got to happen? It's like, well, I've got a problem. I'm coming to Nathan. Right. Sure. But, but now I got to realize is I have a problem. But what if I don't know that I have a problem? What right. if I what if I don't know that I have that problem? What is it? So what's interesting is. This idea of commercial insight, which we lay out again in the book, is is not different than thought leadership, but a subset of thought leadership. There's a there's a certain flavor of thought leadership that is very different, which is this thing that we've come to call commercial insight, which is not just insight, but insight you can monetize. That's commercial insight. And the difference is this, that so much thought leadership, particularly in the last six, seven years, where we've all in the marketing side, we've all hired, well, content agencies. We've all bought uh, marketing technology. We've all built marketing automation. We've all gone out and, you know, and built platforms to, to produce not just more, but better content than ever before. And we put it on a content schedule and run it against a dashboard and it starts blinking red on the first Tuesday of every month. It's like, oh my God, we need a blog post. Get a blog post out sure. there so we can demonstrate to the marketplace sure. yet one more time that we're sure. smart. And that's where we're at, right? It's like, we need something on, I don't know, China. Let's write on China this sure. month. So we're like the five reasons why you need to be prepared for the downturn today. And we just pump out more information after right. information after information, trying to demonstrate to the world that we have smart things to say. And you know what? In this world where customers are like, frankly, they're just trying to figure out, not the world, they're just trying to figure out their business. And so what we find is so much of thought leadership is designed to teach your customers that you're smart. Hmm. Commercial insight, on the other hand, is designed very specifically to teach your customers that they're wrong. And that's the difference. So content, thought leadership is designed to teach your customers that you're smart. Oh, man, those are smart guys. We should buy something from them. Versus commercial insight is content designed to teach your customers that they're 
wrong. But as I always joke, then just don't say it like that, right? right? But it's it's to show your customers that it's not that the world is different, the world's bigger, but show your customers that their current behavior, their the, current priorities is somehow leaving money on the table, right. is exposing them to risk. That way it's it's a very almost like personal story, personal at the sure. organizational level. It's not a story about the world, it's a story about you and your right. organization. They're not and looking that's at a, the world in the right way. They're not looking at their problem in the right that's way. Right. They need to put on a, a different set of goggles to sort of see the world slightly differently and and in that you talk about five types of commercial information and in order of priority they are general information accepted information thought leadership which you don't like i won't mention that word again uh, okay. insight commercial and commercial insight and you say most b2b marketers are focused on thought leadership but you say that obviously commercial insight as you've just said is the most powerful um because it teaches the customer to look at their own problem differently because yeah. I guess historically they would have thought that, huh, we're doing, we're doing the right things we're doing. We're going in the right direction, but actually yeah. commercial insight teaches them that actually you might need to look at that problem again at a second, um, at a, at a different glance, at a different angle. Right. Because, because again, it's not that I'm here to bash thought leadership per se. It's just, it won't solve the problem that mm. you think it's going to solve by building in the first place. And that's the only reason why I've got this bugaboo about thought leadership is it's what I call a false positive, right? Mm. So the, uh, the, the, in fact, let me back up. Here's, here's the way that we, we think about it. And I've come to personally think about it, Nathan, over the years is that, you know, it's funny, whether you're a big company, a small company, whether you're selling to big companies or small companies in one way or another, you know, whether you're all over the world or regional, whether you're in direct, indirect, whatever industry you're in, technology, services, you name it, capital equipment. The end of the day, Nathan, what I've I've come to understand is in order to succeed, we all sell the same thing. We all sell the same thing. What we all sell more than anything else, you know what we sell? We sell change. Mm -hmm. The thing that we're trying to get our customers to do in some way or another is simply to change their behavior. At least if you want to acquire a customer, if you want to get a customer to grow with you, mm-hmm. you've got to get them to embrace something different, either to stop using this old technology, start using this new technology, stop stop doing it yourself, outsource it to us, stop mm-hmm. using that customer or that, that supplier, start using us as mm-hmm. a supplier. Whatever it might be, one way or another, we're all trying to get our customers to change their behavior. Now, And nobody wants to do that. Exactly. It's so one thing every inertia. company wants to avoid at all costs. Right, right. exactly. It's change. I don't want to change. It's, I want to continue doing it, what I've right? been doing for the last 20 years. It's expensive. It's disruptive. Right. It's unknown. It's risky. It's like, right. I, I don't want to change. So, so if you want to sell, particularly if you want to grow in this mm. world, then the thing you got to get your customer to do is not to buy, which is mm. what we're all trying to solve for. you got to get your customer to change. And that's a very different kind of conversation. That's a much more, as I mentioned before, a personal kind of conversation. But this is where the dynamic of thought leadership versus insight really, really matters. So yes, so, so to the degree that thought leadership is about saying smart things about the world, it's very easy for me to consume that thought leadership and say, wow, those guys are really, really smart. Someday, if I ever need them, I might give them a call. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't lead me to to change, right? It's like, it's, it's one of those things like you, you read a, a white paper on the five steps of what's going on in the economy where it's like, huh, that's, that's pretty interesting. Ah, I wonder what's for lunch today. And you go back and go, you know, like, sure. but, but if, if you present me with an insight about my organization and you show me that whatever I'm doing now, my current state, we call this the A state, your current set of beliefs, your current set of behaviors is somehow costing me or exposing me to risk or is driving me to forego opportunity then it's like, wow, I got to, I got to do something different. 
what and what would it, so so the, as we often say if you and if you think about the B state as the new behavior the new solution as we often typically and that's typically what we sell we sell the B state we sell the new solution the new set of behaviors like here's a new way for you to act we sell the we 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 will calculate the ROI of the of the new way the B state we'll we'll mm-hmm. bring out the We'll calculate the total cost of ownership or the lifetime value of the B state. We'll bring out the customer testimonial to testify to the value of the B. And what's really interesting is your customer will see all this stuff and say, you're right, that is amazing. That's better. I got to do that. But they think, you know, it's kind of hard. Yeah. It's kind of complex. <laughs> I got to get all these people involved. Sure. It's kind of risky. So while I believe you, Nathan, that that's a better state, you know, what we're doing now is it's not as good, but it's probably for now at it's least it's going to have to be what? Good enough, right? And that's where you lose the deal. You lose the deal not because you failed to sell them on the mm. value of the B, because you mm. convince them. They look you in the eye and say, "You're right. Yeah. That B is, it better. is better. You're better." But yeah. what we're doing now is good enough, and you yeah. lost the deal not because you sold, you failed to sell them on the value of the B, but rather because you failed to get them off of the A. You failed mm. to get them to change, and that's the key element of insight that makes it so different than anything else. Is insight is not about one thing; it's about two things. It's 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 a contrast. It's a, if you want, welcome to my academic background. It's a dialectic, right? It's a, it's creates oh, a, a tension between current state. I know it's a big word, right? Current state versus potential state, and creating that tension, that contrast, and it's in that contrast that business is made. Hmm, that business really interesting. is done, that deals are made. Yeah. You, you provide a really great example in the in the book, actually. Um, I think the company's called Dentistry. They, have a, they had a product, there was a new organization that had a product that sold to dentists. And essentially, yeah. it, it was a way of cleaning teeth slightly better. And it was the new product that the company came up with was a better product. It, you know, it, all the dentists that they pitched it to, they agreed, hey, it, it looks great, it operates great, you know, this this would be a great addition to my practice. But the challenge was it wasn't different enough or it wasn't better enough to get them to change because their current solution, they didn't see the the gap between where they were right now and the difference that this new product would make to to the operating of their business until the salespeople changed their approach to, I guess, presenting how, what impact the new product would have on the profitability of the practice, which is what all almost, dentists almost. are trying it, it's to a, achieve. It's almost, so the, the company's called uh, Dent Supply. Dent, Dent Supply. There you go. So we actually, no, it's, it was a while ago better. I read it. Dent, it's Dent Supply. So Dent Supply. It's, it's, it's two syllables. But, okay. yeah, but either way, and we go through this in a lot of detail, but, but, but what's interesting is it's that the story, the reason why that story works so well is because the dent supply reps in this new world didn't spend the time convincing the customer the value of this new behavior. Mm-hmm. The thing that was so new is they were able to go out and convince dentists of the cost of their current behavior. Hmm. That's the difference. It's like, did you know, so what are you doing right now? Did you know that, that your current, you know, so using these kinds of instruments, and, and then I show them the new shiny instrument, and they say, wow, it is new, and wow, it is shiny, and mm. I love it, and it's so great, but mm. you know, it's kind of expensive, and it's new technology, it involves training, and oh gosh, so, you know, the stuff we have now, it's like, it's not as good, but it's probably gonna have to be good enough for now, right? So mm. they would, they'd love it. And see, this is the problem, it's like, what do you do when your customer looks you in the eye and agrees right up front that your product is better, and still doesn't buy it anyway? Mm-hmm. That's so frustrating, <laughs> That's frustrating. particularly from a sales rep's perspective, right. it's like, I did what you freaking told me to do, right. excuse me, the language, right? But it's like, I, you trained me on this and I went out and did exactly what you trained me to do. I used the script and I showed them that my our product was better and they agreed that our product was better sure. and they still didn't buy. What's sure. left? I don't know. And that's what's left is everything that's in this book. What's left is don't convince them of the value of your solution. Convince them of the cost of their current behavior. Hmm. And that is a critical difference that sets 
everything in motion. So, so again, not to go into belabor the details of the story, because it's all laid out in the book, but it, the idea is like, did you know that the kinds of instruments that you're using right now lead to far greater costs than you realize in terms of uh, employee uh, retention, in terms of, and there's a there's story like this equipment, it's heavy, it's not ergonomic, it causes carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, so uh, the hygienists, those that use these instruments are out sick more often than not, which means you got to hire more than you need. It means you got to cancel appointments. You got the cost of moms being mad because their dentist is, uh, keeps canceling appointments. So they take the entire family out of that dental office to move on to a different one and on and on. And once you calculate all this cost, he's like, wow, this is costing me a fortune using this kind of equipment. What would, how would I have to fix this? Well, the only way to fix this would have to be lighter instruments that don't mm -hmm. cause carpal tunnel. You're right, mm -hmm. but you know, maybe wireless. Where am I going to get an instrument like that? Well, funny you should ask. Let right. me show you the new instrument. So <laughs> right. the whole idea is don't lead with your product, but lead to your lead product. To it. And that's, that's the key element. Makes sense. I can't let you go without um, sort of presenting a challenge to the challenger sale. So yes. a few months ago, we had a, um, a guest on the, on the show, Jeb Blunt. You may know who sure. he is. Yeah written many fantastic sales books over the years. Uh, he said, uh, when I asked him about, about the Challenger sale, he said that he had a couple of issues with it. Number one, he said that he'd been selling like that for years before Challenger sale yeah. had, had come out. And, he, and the second thing was when he went into his clients and talked about the Challenger sale, many of them said that they didn't necessarily like it because who wanted a 21-year-old that came out of college challenging them about their business that they've been running for 20 or 30 or, or, or 40 years in some instances. So he had a couple of issues with the, with the challenger sale. How, how do you respond to those? <laughs> fine. Yeah. So, so, so uh, there is in fact, actually we see in our research emerging a very significant challenge to the challenger approach. Uh, and it's neither of those things. Those two are kind of red herrings to be totally honest. Uh, so the, the first one as well, and we hear this a lot, particularly early on, it's like, hey, I think it's people are frustrated that the book took off the way it did. But I didn't anticipate that it would take off the way it did either. But it's 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 cool to see. Um, but the, um, um, you know, we hear a lot like, well, Brent, my my best sales reps have been selling like this for years. I don't know if there's anything new here. And our simple reaction is, well, look, we know your best sales reps are doing this already because it wouldn't, it literally sure. would not show up in the in data the right. unless it was yeah. already happening. Mm -hmm. So, so what, what the, what the book is per se is just an articulation of what's already happening. So to the degree that Jeb says, I've got people doing this already, we'd say that's fantastic. In fact, one would not only expect that one would hope that. So that's mm -hmm. actually not bad news for challenge. I think that's good news because frankly, the, the, the bigger criticism that I think you could have laid or anyone could have laid against is like, this stuff's really hard. And it is, uh, and and that's so that's a frustrating thing. That the the uh, by the way, I think where where people get sort of wrapped around the axle on Challenger, and for good reason, is that they they tend to think they get frustrated. It's like, well, it's a sales methodology. Here's just one more sales methodology, and how is this different from all the other sales methodologies? And and, and say, like, oh, these guys have come up with a new sales methodology and are trying to teach it to the world. It's like, you know what? The one thing, if I could get in a time machine, Nathan, go back ten years, the one thing I would fight even harder than I did. I, I fought for two years and finally just gave up. But I, I would fight probably even harder on this is to not let this become perceived as a sales methodology because mm. it's not. It was never meant to be a sales methodology. Frank, you know what it is? It's research. Mm. And, and just the, it's a, if you want, if you don't like to call it research, which I totally would understand, it's a commercial approach. It's a commercial strategy. It's how you as a company, not as a rep, but as a company go to market. And, and in many ways, what we're trying to tease out in the challenger customers, the whole marketing ecosystem that sits around this idea when done well. And that's not about a sales methodology at, at all. Um, the second thing is, 
to Jeff's point about, well, do I really want a 21-year-old coming in and telling me something new about my business? Well, if you've got a problem with them being 21, then you're an ageist, right? But I think what you want, if, but if the if the idea is I don't want someone coming in and being obnoxious or being uh, presumptive, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, then yeah, I'd 100% agree with them. Sure. You know, that, Regardless that, of their it, age. Right, exactly. And by the way, I wouldn't want a 50 year old doing that either. Right. So, so it's like, who the heck yeah. are you? Right. Coming right. to tell me about my business. So the thing that's so interesting about the challenger is that so much of it is in the art of the delivery, right? It's mm. like, how can I, in a diplomatic professional, and I think most important is we're out really seeing in our data in a Socratic manner, have a conversation with a customer that leads them to understand their business better than they understood it before. Hmm. And what were the, our latest research is really telling us pretty emphatically, if you just come in and tell them, here's what you need to know, that actually can really backfire against you. So, so it is, that's your goal, is to teach your customer something new about your business. But the delivery has got to be very carefully articulated so that you go on an, almost like a co-discovery journey with your customers. So the, the goal is get them to think differently about their business the way that you've led them to, but it can't just be by telling them what they need to know because frankly, that, that in fact, you're 21 doesn't matter. Sure. Um, you know, it's like, because like, to, you know, it's like, so what do I fire all my 20 year old, 21 year olds and sure. hire a bunch of 40 year olds and sure. have them do it? Like they're going to fail too because mm. it's like, it just doesn't work that way. Makes sense. So I think what he's getting at is, that, you know, a lot of people react um, negatively to the idea, the, the language of challenger, like you really want to challenge customers. And the answer is, yeah, you do, but you want to do that professionally. You want to do that diplomatically. You want to do that socially correctly. The, the way that you challenge, quote unquote, challenge in Japan is totally different than the way that you would challenge in, say, New York. Hmm. Um, and, and so the, the, the idea of challenge is not meant to be a description of the conversational tone. It's meant to be a description of the underlying objective, which is break down the A before you build up the B. And if you haven't broken down the A, you're not going to get anywhere. And if you break down the A in an obnoxious, annoying, or uninspired, or uninformed uh, way, then you're still not doing it very well. And, and you should absolutely, no question, your customer's going to shut it down. Hmm. Quite, quite fascinating. Brent, let's, one more question before we get into our favorite questions towards the back end okay. of, of the oh, interview. <laughs> you don't have to be worried. They're, they're, they're pretty easy, but uh, okay. uh, final question. So let's talk about the future of marketing because in preparation for the interview, I, was, I, I watched a video of yours where you were talking about the fact that we're seeing increasingly, uh, we're seeing sort of machines increasingly buying from machines. So <laughs> I did uh, say that, didn't I? <laughs> you did. Yeah. So our fridge orders from our, our website, our toaster right. tells our fridge what to cook, etc. And these things actually have implications for which brands are the ones that are automatically selected by the, the, the algorithm, yeah. uh, you know, Amazon Echo, Alexa, what have you. So it becomes less about the power. So it becomes less about the power of the the brand more about the cost of getting into the algorithm or which obviously yeah. is something that can be commoditized. And that may lead to a world where we rely on salespeople less and less. We don't need salespeople because they're sort of out of the picture. So right. the question is, what would I do? What would I do for a career in that, in, in that situation? And are we seeing the, the increase of, 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 you know, of that sort of uh, So this is like, it, it's like science fiction that's not, right? It's like okay. science fiction that's actually reality. It's, right. um, uh, this is, but to be totally fair, I mean, as far as I can tell, this is over the horizon still. But, but, it's, but it's over the horizon. It's not on a different planet, right? Mm. So 
we are moving, and I think it'll be the simple stuff first. Of course, you know, the stuff that lends itself to e-commerce, um, consumer goods in some ways do this mm-hmm. already, right? So on the consumer side, you know, you press a, you know, the, we're half a step, if that, away from your fridge telling the, you know, your computer that um, is like, now you got to say, hey, Alexa, or hey, Siri, or hey, whatever, mm-hmm. order milk, right? It's only a matter of time before your refrigerator just does that for you and mm-hmm. says, hey, we're out of milk, order some, right? So the the way you win in that world then is not, is very, is, is so much further upstream, right? So the, the way you win in that world is become the default milk provider that's, uh, you know, because it's like, hey, Siri, or hey, Alexa, pick your favorite voice so you know, voice tool. But it's like sure. uh, uh, buy milk unless you say buy product A, milk, brand. brand A milk right. or brand B milk. It's just going to buy. It's like buy milk. Say it's done. It's like and you say, oh my god, that was so easy. Yeah. And if I'm not the default brand that gets bought, yeah. then then, then I'm going to lose. lose. Right. So mm. so becoming that default brand in that world becomes critically important. And if you're asking what the sales reps do in this world, it's like well, I guess the sales rep, not I guess, but in that world, I suppose you need a smaller sales team to sell the the vendors on, on becoming that brand. Sure. But th- this is one of those, like, what do we do when robots rule the world? Like, uh, hopefully they'll be good overlords and we can all hang out on the beach. I don't <laughs> yeah. know, but have you seen the, the latest Terminator? It's uh, no idea. Probably not gonna happen. That, that stuff scares me because it's too close <laughs> to reality. Right. So, right. but you know, this is speculative down the road, but I don't think it's, it's like crazy talk either. Yeah. Right. You know, because we're now hearing even, even versions of this in B2B where, you know, uh, algorithms are, are working with algorithms to figure out the right pricing and like the humans kind of set up the algorithms to get out of the way. And it's like this stuff's super, super interesting. Mm. The thing, if I could, I, I'd leave you with though, Nathan, is what is the, the, the thing that's got our attention and our concern, and I'll just give you the soundbite on this, is, um, is what happens between now and then across the next 10 years. Because the thing that we're seeing right now in our research is you know we've talked so much about people and the rise number the rising number of people and how much people are involved in the purchase and that continues to go up and is incredibly dramatic the thing that's new for us that we're so interested in is not the role of people but the role of information itself hmm. and the fact that there is not only more and more information involved and this goes back to the the question that's still sitting out there that you posed at the beginning of the call which is what happens when your customers can learn on their own and they're more empowered it's like yeah they're more empowered but they they use that information to say like, okay, all three of these suppliers are good enough. Like, give me the cheap one. So you wind up getting commoditized in that world. But you know what we're finding now is that, uh, let's see, this is a lot of research behind this. So I got to just see if I can, uh, when you, when we go out and we ask customers today, it's a very simple question. In fact, one of the driving questions, of this is we, we, we ask customers about over a thousand B2B customers last year, very simple question, which is to what degree, do you find the information? Did you, to what degree did you find the information that you encountered as part of this purchase decision to be generally of high quality? So, to what degree did you find the information that you encountered as part of this per, uh, purchase process to be generally of high quality? And they were right. all answering questions about big complex purchases. Right. You know what happened, Nathan? Mm-hmm. 80, 89%. So, that's basically all of them. Right? If you round up, I'm a liberal arts guy, so I round up, right? The uh, 89% of customers said, you know what? The information that we encountered as part of this purchase was generally of high quality. It's all pretty good. Mm. And this takes us to it's, it's a very innocuous little data point, but it takes us to a radically different place. Because if you think about where we've been over the last 10 years, particularly with Challenger, or this, the, the work we call the blue arrow and customers learning on their own, mm-hmm. it's largely been a story of, man, there's so much information out there and customers are learning on their own. And, and largely that learning process is a, is a, is a process of separating signal from noise right Mm -hmm. of of figuring out like what's the good information and how do i the wheat from chaff whatever metaphor you like but what do you do in a world where not where it's all pretty good it's Mm. all pretty smart it's all backed by data Mm -hmm. it's all got evidence and and again i think going back to an early part of our conversation the reason why they're saying this because 
we, particularly as marketers, have created this world to the degree that we all want to be thought leaders in our industry, to the degree that we have no more MarTech, more data, more analytics than ever before to actually make good on that, that, that promise. We're all now collectively just pumping massive amounts of not just information, but quality information sure. out into the marketplace, leaving our customers now confused at a higher level. Because I go out and, and try to do research. I Not only do I find really good research, I find huge Tons amounts of, of really good research right. and it's like and it's all good and it's all well, all but most of it's, it's mm. largely good and credible mm. and backed by data mm. but now what do i do is if you are you've got the thought leadership play and you're telling me i should zig and you've got data and experts and white papers and analytics tell me i should zig and some other company tell me i should zag and they've got data they've got white papers they've got analytics sure. and they've got, so like, crap now what do i do <laughs> it's like as he, mm. I got two different companies tell me two different things, and, mm. and whether they're both challenger organizations or not doesn't matter because because you know people you always ask this like what happens when everyone becomes a challenger and here we are ten years down the road and you know what that ain't ever going to happen it's just too hard it's too complex but the thing that got commoditized wasn't commercial insight the thing that got commoditized over the last couple of years is just saying smart things mm. more generally the bar for commoditization turns out was a lot lower than we anticipated. So now if I'm a customer in this world and you know, like you're telling me you've got your commercial insight, you're telling me you broke my A and you built my B and oh my God, I gotta do that. But then some other companies like say, no, no, you gotta do this other thing. And it's all credible. I don't know what to do. So what do I do? What do you think, Nathan? What happens in that world as a customer? What do I decide to do in that world where where it's all looks smart but it doesn't always align? Or it all looks smart but it all looks the same. What do I do? What do you think? It's a good question. Um, what do you do? You usually default to the the most charming salesperson, <laughs> the oh, most charming salesperson, that's interesting or you went there. or yeah. well, I guess it, it comes down to the relationship that you have with the the salesperson or the business development rep that you're that you're yeah. conversing that's with. Partly true. I yeah. yeah, because to me, the value of the business development person or the salesperson in that sales conversation that's able to help the customer navigate those choices yes. if they're able to build a relationship and they build a trusted relationship with that prospect through a series of, of interactions that's the sort of thing that can win a customer over that's probably on the fence with one vendor over another so so you're so on the right track you're okay. like, but but the interesting is you've got you've got the right answer i'm a salesman with, so i would say that uh, no, and i appreciate <laughs> that so so it is not charm it is value, right? It's so value. you're like, yeah, right. But but the question is, what's valuable? Like, what would a customer perceive as valuable in very specifically in that context? And we know this now from data. What the customer would perceive as valuable is if someone would just come in here and help me make sense out of all of this information. Help me take your insight and that white paper and that piece of literature and that piece of content I've encountered over that. This thing that I downloaded from this marketing website where I gave my email and now they won't leave me alone. It's like, how, how do I just put it all together? We call this sense making. Hmm. And the reps that are winning today are playing this very different role, which is not just dumping more insight on my desk or just showing me one more thought leadership piece or telling me one more thing I need to know. But they're actually taking the content that they want to share and putting in the context of all that other information and helping customers just make sense, not of just my insight, but all of it. 
help me feel more confident to make a bigger choice. Because the thing that we're finding that really is actually your biggest competitor today, it's, you know, we talk about status quo and good enough. The single biggest thing that's stopping you from growing the way that you want today is what, what I've come to call a crisis of confidence. Mm. Your customers in this kind of environment, they can't be confident to make big choices. Mm-hmm. You want me to make a big disruptive choice to spend millions on this new solution? When they're telling me that's the right answer, you're telling me that the other thing's the right answer? I don't feel confident at all. And by the way, it's not that I don't feel confident in you. Rather, it's I don't feel confident in and me to make to make this kind of decision. And so what we find is the sales rep that plays this role of sense making, uh, that plays the sense making role, who comes as, you know what, I hear you, this is really overwhelming. Let me just show you how all this fits together. Let me help you kind of come to your own conclusions about the best decision for you based on a couple of criteria we find to be really helpful. That kind of approach, helping customers make sense out of all of that information out there is by far the single biggest thing you can do, the incremental um, benefit yeah. or a, a approach you can drive today because you know why because it gives your customers more confidence it means I, they're less skeptical of you and your role as a as a sales rep and they're yeah. more confident in themselves to, dis- I, to make a bigger decision i definitely would agree with you ultimately as a salesperson you need to become that trusted advisor but i guess the pushback from that would be yeah the pushback from that would be well the the prospect sometimes doesn't even believe the salesperson because they have their own vested interest. Ultimately, they're trying to sell their own solution. So right. they would be they they would try and be that sense maker. Every salesperson is trying to be the sell that sense maker for the prospect. Yeah. So there's this natural distrust that the prospect has with every new salesperson that that approaches them with with a sense making yeah. solution. So that's why I think the differentiator, uh, and I totally ag- agree with you and, and, and from all, all the research. So, but, but, but watch this space because it's interesting. Sure. What's interesting is so you go out and you talk to customers and ask them how many sales reps that sold to you engaged in this sense-making kind of behavior. You find it's actually uh, pretty rare. So oh, right. to be your point, it's like, it's like all sales reps are trying to do like, Actually, they're not. Because oh, really? what sales there's actually three approaches we found in our research uh, that customers perceive in terms of like when we ask questions like how did you perceive the sales rep as engaging you with information, and and that, that uh, after a lot of analysis boiled down to three sort of very different approaches towards information what we call giving, telling, and sense making. Mm-hmm. Giving is hey you want some information here's some information you want some more information I'd be happy to help you in fact here's another white paper let me send you to this link mm-hmm. and it's just like it is it is what I call uh, indiscriminate generosity right. it's like here's more right. information by the way in a world where your customers are already overwhelmed with too much information sure. just giving them more information mm-hmm. makes things worse and it's really common because how many sure. sales reps do you know say I, it's like I need to call them I need a reason to call them sure. give me a new piece of collateral give me a new white paper give me a new here's commercial a new insight so I have a reason here's to call them here's a new blog post here's a new that's video. exactly right, right. so give 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 and you actually make things worse worse, worse. So sure. the, odd, the the middle one, this idea of telling, which is, you know what, look, I've been selling in this industry for 30 years. And in my 30 years, I've developed a very deep expertise. And let me just tell you what I think you need to do. And so this is the this is the subject matter expert that we hire who has that deep industry knowledge, who just comes in and says, here's what you need to know. And it turns out this strategy completely backfires too, because the thing we're trying to solve for in this world, it turns out, is not my confidence in you and your expertise. The thing that I got to solve for is, my confidence in myself and my ability as a customer to make a purchase decision. And just because you've got 30 years of experience that makes you think you're right, doesn't tell me that I should necessarily do that. So rather it's like, that's one man's opinion, but rather now, or one person's opinion, but now I got to take that opinion, that perspective and combine it with everything else I've learned from all those other sources. Mm. And these sense make reps, they're the ones that do that. And it's a very rare skill or technique that we're saying it's not a methodology Mm -hmm. it's a technique. 
and it's very rare right now, but it's the thing that wins because it solves for customers' biggest problem today, which is I don't feel confident to make a choice in this environment. And if you keep selling me, telling me more smart things, you just make it worse. Is this by Super any chance, is this, it really isn't very interesting. Is this by any chance a segue into the new book that you're writing or working on? Uh, I'm currently not writing anything, but okay. but it is but it is it is a body of work. In fact, we just did our, our CSO and sales leader conference in Vegas a few weeks ago, and mm-hmm. I, I wrote the keynote for that. And and the keynote comes back to not so much the sense-making idea per se, but this idea of confidence. I, th- mm. I think, honestly, if to leave you with one big thought, Nathan, is the single biggest obstacle that we all face as B2B suppliers in today's environment is what I've come to call this, this crisis of confidence. Mm. And it's not that your customers are not confident in you. It's actually they're not confident in themselves. Like you may show me a new way to make money or save money, but you know what? When I start doing the mental math of all those many different people I've got to get involved in, like I get to get through the data team and I've got all this other information. Oh, by the way, I got all this information out there that tells me I should do something different and it's all believable and credible too. You know what? I don't know what to do. It's like, yeah, I'm motivated to change, but I'm not confident in my ability to even make the right choice or, or to execute on the change or to actually get it done. So I'll just choose not to choose or I'll choose something smaller. I'll choose something less risk averse. And so the, if, if, to be totally honest, I often joke with our head of research. His name's Eric. He's a great guy. I said, you know, it, Eric, it's kind of funny in this world that commerce even happens at all. Hmm. Uh, and, and I, I think what, and the, the answer is, well, commerce still happens because it has to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Companies still need to buy things. They need repair parts for their mm-hmm. machines. They need health insurance plans for their employees, at mm-hmm. least in the States. There's, there's, a, you know, a thousand different things mm-hmm. that customers mm-hmm. have to buy on any given basis, but it does make me wonder, Nathan, how much more commerce would happen if customers were more, just more confident to make bigger, broader, more disruptive decisions, hmm. not purchases, but just decisions. And I think what we face right now is just like none of us are confident to make the kinds of decisions we need in our companies to lead suppliers to sell bigger solutions. Hmm. And so the, the thing we've got to solve for today is this like two pronged approach of which is the first thing we introduced last year is the idea of buyer enablement, which is just make the buying process easier, become a buying Sherpa, a buying coach for your customer, teach them how to purchase. And the second thing is a sense making idea, which is just help them make sense out of all their information. And if it's end of the day, you want to call that a trusted advisor, sign me up. But I got to tell you, the problem I have, and I've always had with this term trusted advisor, is it's an empty vessel that is in itself virtually meaningless. Because every time I introduce new research to the marketplace for our team, someone will look at me and say, oh, you just mean trusted advisor. Be a challenger. Oh, you mean trusted advisor. (laughs) You need to be a commercial insight. Oh, you mean trusted advisor. You need to offer buyer enable. Oh, you mean trusted advisor. It's the default. Right. It's like it's just like this. It's it's a name that's become almost meaningless. So it's like, okay, fine. I'll give you trusted advisor. But now tell me specifically how, what, what, what advice are you giving and how exactly is that winning trust? And that's where these things like buyer enablement, sense-making become critically important. And so you watch this space. This is the, I, you know, if there's a, there'll be articles, there'll be keynotes, there'll eventually probably be a book. uh, But there's just a lot of work that we're doing that shows that today, honestly, in the world we live in today, saying smart things probably is necessary, but not sufficient, even when it's commercial insight. And that's super interesting. Quite fascinating. Quite fascinating. Let's, I know I've only got you for a couple more minutes. In fact, I'm I'm overrunning, but let's get into our favorite questions that I ask all of my guests. Um, Tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Um, uh, oh goodness sakes. I fail every single day hmm. and I learn nothing. Uh, that's just, <laughs> you keep repeating that. that. That's pretty yeah, that's, bad. Well, no, I, it's just like, like, you know, it, 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 I'm my own worst enemy. So that's a whole different podcast for a different time. And it comes back under psychology right. rather right. But the, uh, the, um, you know, what uh, the, 
I often tell people when I present or when I run a meeting, it's like if you ever – because I used to teach. So maybe I'll put it in that context. When I, when I was training teachers back in my academic days, I used to tell my, my, training, my teacher trainees, if there's ever a day when you walk out of that classroom and think that you nailed it and it was perfect, mm-hmm. you probably should stop. You should you should step down that day because there's always something you can do better. There's always something you can do different. And degree that you want to call that a failure, that seems mm-hmm. kind of negative. But that's kind of the way I look. It's like it's not so much I fail, but I could do better. Sure. And every single day, and everything I say, you know, we'll get up, we'll finish this podcast, and I'll you know, first thing I'll say is like, God, I talked a lot, and I need to stop talking so much. Um, and and it's like so duly noted, and it's like so, no, so I, not I at failed. All. That's why we invite. So that's why we invited you on the podcast for you to talk. It's not for me to talk. It's for you. This is your platform. Um, really interesting. Tell us about the most interesting thing that people don't know about Brent Adamson. Oh, there's nothing interesting. About <laughs> I, 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 I'm just an empty That's vessel. I'm just a messenger. It's all I am. That's so there's, there is, no, no, there's, there, there really is, you know, look, we're all on our own life journey trying to figure things out. And I, I, I don't, you know, what's, I don't know, man, I, I know nothing. I, that I think that I think what's maybe, I don't know if it's interesting to people, but that's, that's the unvarnished truth is at the end of the day, I've got imposter syndrome like everybody else, I suppose. But I, you know, I, um, I, I'm just a schlub from Omaha, Nebraska, trying to make it through life. I think that's, I don't know if that's, that's probably actually the least interesting thing that people don't know about me, but it's, it's interesting in the sense that we've had so much success with the books and the research and, and my name's been associated with it, which is incredibly humbling. You can imagine Nathan, but mm. at the end of the day, I don't really feel any different than any of the rest of us just trying to stumble our way through life, trying to figure out like, what's it all about. And so, um, that might be surprising to people. Really? So there you yeah, go. Quite fascinating. Um, we've mentioned so many books today. Tell us about some of your other favorite books. What are you reading at the moment or what mm. books do you keep on going back to time and time again? Like what does Brent Adamson read? All right. So, so in fact, I literally just bought like 15 books and okay. then I realized I'd, I'd prefer to listen to podcasts. So, <laughs> so the thing I'm doing now is I'm, I'm like full on the podcast train, right. uh, podcasts like, uh, recode, decode and pivot. Okay. And my yep. favorite one is, um, is how I built this with Guy Raz. Oh, Guy Raz, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Oh my God, that guy is so good as an interviewer. Yeah. Um, hey, since I'm on the topic for what it's worth, we just launched our own podcast, uh, which I call Lessons in Sales Leadership, where I invite in- incredibly impressive heads of sales to share their stories. So if that's interesting to anyone, that's all on the you're, platforms. You're um, interviewing guests? Yes, that's exactly right. Fantastic. So the, uh, in fact, I just did one this morning. It's going to be super fascinating. We'll put that out in a, in a few weeks, but there's one coming out tomorrow. Uh, from Mike Hawkins, the global head of sales at Kelly Services. Really will, interesting stuff. I will subscribe. Um, cool. Thanks, man. But the, uh, and don't forget five stars. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, the book well, that's we'll on my nightstand right now. Uh, I, <laughs> fair point. Uh, Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for a lot of his work in a book that most of us will least have heard of called Thinking Fast and Slow, yeah. which is a book about human biases and how the brain works and how we think. I'm reading, uh, I'm going back and reading a lot of his work and it's 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 so dense. It's just hard, um, yeah. but incredibly powerful because it helps us understand not how to how does buying and selling work, but how mm-hmm. people work. And I mm-hmm. think at the end of the day, what I'm seeing more and more in our research now, more than anything else, Nathan, is not a buying story or a selling story. It's a human story. Mm-hmm. And so, understanding this humanity side, Robert Cialdini, his book is Influence is oh, a classic. It's been out fantastic. there. Um, I'm doing a lot of reading on empathy right now, just trying yeah. to understand the role that empathy plays in sales. Um, uh, you know, Malcolm Gladwell just came out with a new one, which I saw my nightstand. I haven't cracked it open yet. Uh, but there's a 
because who doesn't like a good Malcolm Gladwell read? Um, right. So the, uh, so there's, there's a lot, but, but I'll tell you podcast is where it's at. Cause I spend 50 hours a day on driving to and from work. It seems when I'm right. not on an airplane. So whether I'm okay. either my car or my airplane, I'm yeah. podcasting. Okay. Yeah, which is great stuff. Audio great books fun. as well are good for that. By the way, thinking fast yeah. and slow is probably better for the audio book than it is uh, the written. You know, that's a really good point. That's it. it. Really but, is. By the way, yeah, that's a that's a, it's like because it's it's a slog, but it, in like it, in all the best ways. Yeah, it's so dense. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, no, e- excellent. Okay, really interesting. Um, tell us about some of your mentors. Who influenced your early career? The way that you think about sales, the way you think about entrepreneurship, the way you think about growing businesses. Who were your earlier mentors? So, so remember, uh, I'm not a sales guy, I'm a researcher. True. So the, the, um, uh, and I say that not to be snarky, but rather to mm. say that my, my number one mentor is someone who's deeply important to me, and he's, he's passed away, unfortunately. So, um, uh, so, but his name's Frank Donahue. And Frank Donahue was uh, a professor of German and linguistics at the University of Texas, where I did my doctoral work. And without going into a long story, um, Frank had a just completely profound impact on my life. And, uh, and so everything that you see me do on stages or in front of rooms and how I teach, how I present, uh, how I think, how I do research, it all goes back to Frank. Uh, and, uh, in, in a way that, um, is deeply important to me. And, and I think, so beyond that, um, uh, my parents, mm. it's always, it's always my parents. I'm, I'm so incredibly lucky to have grown up uh, with, uh, a, 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 a mother, a mom, a mother, uh, who's still around, they're both around, mm-hmm. uh, who's wise in ways that one cannot imagine. And a dad who is intelligent in ways that one cannot imagine. So you take wisdom and intelligence, put them together. Um, uh, not to say that they didn't have the other aspect too, but, yeah. um, I've been very, very lucky from, you know, an, an academically driven dad who is an engineer. So he yeah. thinks in a very process sort of way. And then a, a mom who's very right brain and thinks in abstract yeah. ways and just puts things together in unexpected ways. And so, yeah, that it's, um, mm. those are, I think the top three. That's great. That's great to hear. Amazon yeah. prime video or Netflix. Um, I just, I'm like the last American to subscribe to Netflix ever. And I did it about <gasps> no, a month ago. No way. <laughs> uh, so I just subscribed about a month ago and it wasn't for me. It was for my daughter. Cause she wanted to watch stranger things. Cause all the other kids were watching it. So, okay. um, so whereas I've been watching prime now for, uh, probably about a year and a half. Okay. I think the thing that's interesting now is, um, like, how do I choose? So it's basically yeah. now it's not the platform, it's the content. And yeah. I think ultimately that's, what's going to, is, that's who's going to win the platform war, I think, yeah. is who's got the best content. So watch this space. It'd be really interesting. I'll see how it plays out. How do you think Disney Plus is going to do? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I, it's, it's, so yeah, I've got two daughters, uh, 14 and 9. And if I go back in time about 10 years ago, Disney Plus would have been the only thing that would have ever – it's like it's like Disney Plus all the time. Sure. So where were you when I needed you? Sure. But it's interesting. So, uh, I, I, so I, I'm probably making a mistake here, but it strikes me – as more of a kid oriented product, but then you start thinking about the Disney catalog and it's right. like so like all the Marvel work, for example, like that's just Simpsons um, go down the list. That's exactly like, right. Yeah. So, so I, I think it'll be really interesting to one, see what they put in the package and then how they package the package. How do mm. they brand it? Right. So they, do they brand it as a magical moment with Disney? Then I, they might be limiting themselves, but if they, I, it's going to be super interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah. And I think it's also just like how, how much appetite do consumers have, to be on for another platforms. one, right? For another one, right? Do I, one in terms of 
price elasticity? Mm -hmm. Am I willing to pay for another one? Mm -hmm. But there's also this, this complexity thing, right? I think we're going to run this where like, how many platforms? What's my password? I don't know. It's like, which yeah. show is on which platform? How yeah. I record is like, oh, I meant to record that. on now, now I'm on the plane and I didn't record the right one on the right thing. Most people want to spend time yeah. on planes like I do. But, but yeah, at some point, there's going to be, you know what it's going to be? There's going to be some sort of aggregator solution, which is I'm going to aggregate all the platforms. And then we're True. right back to where we started. We're back, back to where we started. Right? So I don't, yeah. again, this could be super interesting to watch. Yeah. I, I don't know. What I'm hearing is that the pie just got for, for internet TV is just going to get bigger and bigger. So, um, oh, Founder of Netflix, what's what's his name? I'm drawing a blank. Um, founder of Netflix. Anyway, whoever the founder of Netflix is, um, yeah, forgotten his name. He said that the more internet TV there is, the more internet TV there is. So, the <laughs> which is really interesting. Which is different than the more good internet TV there is. Well, yes, fair point. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess so. So the pie is just going to get bigger and bigger. So they don't really see Disney Plus as being a competitor. They see it as as something that helps expand the size of the market, which is really interesting. Final question. <laughs> but it's real quick on that one. So it's, it's yeah, funny sorry. to say that because in some ways the exact same lesson as what we're seeing in our research right now with this idea of sense making and everything else, not to make too big of a connection, but in the, you know, the funny thing, like crazy commerce still happens at all. It, 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 I think that the story here is less a story of share, uh, like market share and how do I capture market share? It's a story of how do I make the pie bigger? And whether we're talking about B2B or I think to your point, um, in, in this world of video, on-demand video uh, and internet-based video, mm. um, I think the bigger opportunity is to make the pie bigger rather than take a bigger share of the pie. Hmm. Um, so if you can just keep your wedge but make the pie bigger, you're going to grow. Mm. And that's exactly what we're seeing in B2B as well. Definitely. Quite, quite fascinating. Last couple of questions. Yeah. What advice would you give to a young person or a millennial who comes to you and wants to uh, start a business, become an entrepreneur yeah um uh it, it is it, it sounds so it's, it's just platitudes unfortunately that's i have nothing <laughs> value to provide at all unfortunately but the uh, it is ha, um, be hungry be willing to work but be curious be open and empathy is um is by far the single most valuable attribute that mm. you can either have or develop. You know, it's funny. I have a good friend of mine who's a, is a little older. He's about late twenties now, but he's going through a pretty big um, uh, career change right now. And and he made a choice. And I look at it and think, mm, man, I don't know if I would have made that choice. And what I haven't had a chance to sit down with him. But I think the thing I would tell him is maybe applicable to everyone, which is um, solve. If you solve for joy and happiness, money will likely follow. Hmm. But if you solve for money, it's unlikely or near, not nearly as likely that joy and happiness will follow. Hmm. So it's, it's a real question, I think, of what you solve for first. And, and the, the frustrating thing is if you solve for whether it's contentedness or joy or fulfillment, it, it's got a longer burn to it, right? I mean, it's like, it took me a, a, a journey of 15, 20 years before I found really sort of my, the, my thing. And, and there was, you know, 15 years of, as or at least 10 years as a grad student making $900 a month. I mean, I lived in poverty for a long hmm. time and, and boy, that takes patience. That mm. takes stick to it. It takes stubbornness. Sometimes it takes mm -hmm. stupidity, I suppose. <laughs> Sign me up for that one. But the, uh, but, but it, I think one way or another, but if you solve for money first, you wind up making a lot of money and potentially sure. at least being really unhappy. Sure. I'd solve for happy and money will follow. If you solve for money, I don't know if happy will follow. Great Something answer. Great answer. Yeah. It wasn't a platitude at all. That was a fantastic answer. That sounded pretty deep. <laughs> yeah. Pay me for that one. <laughs> Five stars. Uh, and my final question, Brent, what do you yeah. know about the world of sales and selling today 
that you wish you knew when you started at the beginning of your career? Well, again, so my career being a little bit different, it's a, it's a different, but I, I think I'll tell you I, here, I do have an answer to this question though, which is, so when I started my career, it wasn't sales. In fact, as we mentioned, never was or has been sales. Sure. And, and I think the thing that, I don't know if it would have played out for me personally this way, but the thing that I've come to really understand is 16 years of working with heads of sales and, and sales teams is it's a really incredible career. You know, it's the, um, we all, I think the one thing I keep telling people is like sales clearly has a branding problem. We all think it like, oh, you guys, like this is the one thing you like, you go to the Halloween, the, the family uh, get together. It's like, someone says, you're like, you're embarrassed to you're tell your, your relatives yeah, you're in sales, right? Still. Like, right. And it's like, cause we all have such a bad perception of selling. Definitely. Frankly, I think much of it is well-deserved because most of what's done in sales is frankly awful. But okay. the, uh, but, but done well, mm. whether you call it challenger or not, I, I, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it doesn't matter. It's like if you're helping companies think differently about their business, if you're teaching them ways to be more productive, if you're serving them, adopting mm-hmm. what Mitch Little at Microchip calls a serve a service based, not a service mentality, but a serving mentality, mm-hmm. uh, it can be incredibly fulfilling. And the other thing is you can make a ton of money doing it mm-hmm. like no mm-hmm. one told me how much money you can make in sales it's like now yeah. going completely against the advice i just provided your last question <laughs> it's like it's like dang it you know it's like i just went be a sell for money what the hell was that right it's like i could be like i could have my own island by sure, now if i just sure. like gone into sales and, sure. and it's a and done well, it can be fulfilling. Done well, it can give you the the Simon Sinek sort of purpose that you sure. need in your job. Done well, it can make you a ton of money. Done well, it can lead to senior leadership positions. Um, it's often, of course, not done well. But but boy, I, I don't overlook, don't miss the ball on a sales career, I guess is what I would say to anyone. At least give it a hard look and get past the stereotypes and the bad behavior and really look at it for what it could be, not what it often is. And I think you could potentially find a really fulfilling career there. And no one will tell you that. Fantastic answer. Brent, thank yeah. you so much for doing this. That's great fun, Nathan. Sorry I went so long. I just, you know, like, remember, as soon as we hang up, I'll say, oh, why did you talk so long? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. This is the longest podcast on, on, on record so far. On earth. But it's, been, <laughs> but it's been absolutely fascinating. It's been fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. Cheers. Well, and so, yeah, cheers to everyone out there who's listening. And I, I uh, all to you all the best, man. And I, I hope that, I hope it uh, lands for you. We have been speaking with Brent Adamson. He is currently the vice president at Gartner. We're not going to ask you to subscribe or give a five-star rating or share this episode with a friend because our thinking is if the content is any good, you will willingly do that anyway. We'll leave that decision up to you. Email me at nathanagencydealmasters.com. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. <laughs>